Can you believe this is episode 200? Today on The Curious Task, I'm having a 200 episode extravaganza with your host, Alex Aragona. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Elchidiak, your host, and today our guest is your usual host, Alex Aragona. Alex Aragona is a business professional living in Ontario, Canada. Of course, many of you know him as your host of The Curious Task, but you can also find his work and writing as a fellow at the Centre for a Stateless Society and as a writer for Liberal Currents and Adam Smith Works. Welcome, Alex. It's, it's great to be on The Curious Task. Thank you, Sabine. You're so welcome. Um, you know, just watch and learn how hosting goes you know i've been like listening to you for 200 episodes and i'm just gonna kill it today what can i say yeah let's see and you've also hosted a couple yourself if i remember correctly I did, too. so I this did, is but, but this really is 200 with you because it's fun to talk to you because we're just friends at the end of the day so we can just chit chat about things but it ends up being a really interesting conversation every time yeah absolutely. i'm just kidding you're a great host <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so we base each episode on a theme and a question as you know and go wherever the answers and conversation take us. But things are a bit different today. Uh, and then I want to reflect back on the last 200 episodes with you today, because this indeed is our 200th episode. I know, that's really exciting. If I had a soundboard, I would like do the air horn, like, nah, 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 yeah, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> So my first question for you is, can you believe it? No, that's it. That's- no, no, I, I can't. I'm not sure if you, you had a follow up to that, but uh, no, but I don't have a follow up. Can you believe it? 200 episodes? Well, then my long format answer to that is I can't believe it. I mean, like, I think I've said this before in a couple of the just fun chats we've done with yourself and Matt. But um, like, I'll, I will say it again um, that, you know, when we first started the project, I think it had sort of a pretty uh, modest set of goals in mind. I think we've surpassed those modest goals, actually, if I do say so myself. And I can't further believe that we're actually at 200 episodes of quality content all of our uh like it, it's not exactly 200 uh different academics and interviewees per se because there's some repeats in there but but it's pretty darn close to it so we've had tons of people on the show tons of different uh episodes and types of things covered so yeah no i, I can't believe that it, it uh looking back it's very interesting we got to this point so and it's a great feeling i agree i can't believe i've been producing this for 200 episodes like even if it's a repeat or a special episode, a lot of work goes into every episode. I'm like shout out to you, to me, to Eric, to Matt. Like we're all we all work really hard on producing these episodes every week, um, and we're really glad to see you know our listenership go up and have people get excited about episodes and give us suggestions on which episodes we should do. And and we have some even some guests like email us once in a while saying, "Oh, I just wrote this paper. Would you think it would be interesting for the podcast?" So. Um, and when I go out to conferences and things, people recognize us for the podcast a lot too. Like, oh, the curious task. I was just listening to you the other week. So having that feedback is really uh, makes me feel really good inside. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Makes producing a little easier too when people yeah. actually know who we are versus at the beginning, like the first 10 episodes, right? So it's true. Uh, the first 10 episodes are really special to me because those are the people that really believed in us, you know, like they believe in the ILS and what we do and what the point of the organization is. So they're willing to do it even if it might like we'd fail after the first 10 episodes they're willing to give us a chance and right i'll never i'll never not appreciate those people like the people that really gave us a chance at the beginning yeah uh those are the real mvps <laughs> for sure <laughs> i appreciate that but we've covered a lot about the podcast in past episodes like how it started what we were all thinking when we started it, things like that so i'm not gonna go 
too down too much down that road and i don't want to press you too much on that kind of stuff although you should feel free to talk about it if you do if it comes up sure um rather i want to go down the rabbit hole of some of the our favorite episodes kind of group them into different subjects talk about your views around the subjects why you think they're important that we address them and how you think the guests we've had on have like how well they've done in addressing these topics so there's just a bunch of larger uh, topics that i think um we've had co- sort of grouped a lot of our episodes under um, so the first one, a topic that we hear about a lot for better or for worse, free speech. Mm-hmm. So it's a big topic in on the left, on the right, um, in the center, like everywhere uh, for different reasons. And, uh, you know, just recently we had Camden Hutchison on, uh, and back in 2019, we had Sigal Ben Parath talk about free speech on campus. Can you tell me your thoughts on those episodes and like on the topic itself and how you felt like our podcast has really addressed that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think if I remember, I know there's a lot and you didn't list it all, but another one I think off just off the top of my head that came, I think we also spoke to Jacob Levy about like free speech on campus or academic freedom. So all that kind of like intersected as well. So yeah, no, it's, um yeah, and, and I think like my, my general thought is that, and this sort of relates back to um, my general thought about the podcast overall, which is that um, I think at least, and of course it's not every podcast out there, it's very there's so much great content out there by some great people putting great effort into so many great things that you can't say great enough. But of course, often some of the most viewed and some of the most listened to podcasts or media out there tends to be sort of quick hit, often snarky opinion piece stuff or like, you know, quick hit stuff from frankly, some think tanks are sort of like, here's what you should be thinking about this. And here's what you need to know. And typically that's all around, well, what you need to think and who the enemies to what you need to think are and basically what to watch out for. Frankly, it kind of really comes back down to identity politics and debate culture, which is if there's a place for that, fine. I won't argue for or against that here, but I will say that's one kind of thing. Uh, my, my top takeaway from the free speech stuff that we've done is, again, related back to my general top takeaway for the whole podcast is I'm really happy with the fact and proud of the fact that we were able to sit down with uh, many different people for an hour, like, you know, anywhere between four, sometimes 50 minutes. Of course, if Pete Betke's on on other subjects, sometimes it's like 90 minutes by accident. But but all that to say, like, I'm really happy that we get to have longer format conversations about not only the topic itself in principle, but often the consequences that affect people in real life and also the nuances. Like, just one example is, you know, the nuances we got into in a couple of the episodes with Jacob Levy specifically when it comes to things like uh, pluralism and how different institutions are in our lives, for example, and how he makes a distinction between, you know, first of all, how, you know, what a university does is not necessarily a and isn't a constitutional free speech issue, for example, between yourself and the government. I mean, that's one distinction. But also he talked about some nuances in there. For again, just this is just one example I'm heading down the path of where, you know, he was saying that a lot of the stuff that people externally think of as happening in universities is more related to a lot of the speeches and talks and the things people bring to campus and then the events that they are sort of, uh, you know, centering a lot of attention around. Not that stuff isn't really reflective of like what people's experiences are in the classroom, for example, when they're there to learn Psych 101 or a different topic. Uh, typically, typically these rooms aren't turning into giant culture wars where people are having their speech suppressed, for example, by a, by a you know professor, if you want to frame it that way, for example. So even those types of layers of nuance, I think, are only able to be explored and understood through a longer format chat. So that's my main takeaway. Like on, on that topic, 
I think that like it's a very sensitive one. Unfortunately, to borrow from you know propaganda scholars and George Orwell himself and stuff, a lot of free speech, um, you know, uh, is supposed to be used as a tool for us as a society to engage with each other and learn more about things. And even if we disagree with things, put ideas up for test and debate and so on. There's supposed to be nuance about free speech when you're using it as a tool. But unfortunately, when it gets to how people talk about free speech, we enter the propaganda category of gross oversimplification. So that's a problem. So talking about free speech, which should be a tool for nuanced discussion in society and putting ideas, you know, for debate discussion and really diving deep into them, is often talked about in and of itself through gross oversimplification. So we've in our most humble effort with different academics and each of these academics and each of these writers often come from their own angles too. As everyone listening to us should know, just because we have someone on an episode doesn't mean I personally or the ILS necessarily agrees with every single thing that they say. However, to take that discussion of free speech, what it is, what it means, when it makes sense, the difference between the constitutional aspect of it versus, you know, for instance, private property or a private setting versus sort of an academic setting, all that kind of stuff and those nuanced layers. My, you know, my one takeaway is I'm happy we've sort of stayed away from the gross oversimplification of the the issue. I think we had different people talk about different things and different nuances, which was great. So, I mean, without me directly saying, here's what I think about this topic per se, which would be a whole different thing, I'll just say... I'm very happy we got a lot of different, a lot of minutes on record or on tape, quote unquote, digital tape about this topic because it should be discussed. It's not meant for five or 10 minutes in a podcast or a YouTube video or TikTok of people screaming at each other, right? There's a lot of nuances to this topic. I know that was like long winded, but again, free speech deserves long winded discussion. No, I completely agree with you. I'm also proud of the fact that we like really. Um, put thought into who we would have on to talk about free speech because yeah. we didn't want it to turn into this like my free speech you know kind yeah. of stuff like Agreed. where it's just very oversimplified as you put it and um they, they use like one example and that's it this is what's happening in society and it's really difficult um as somebody who's not like in university anymore uh you it's it's easy to believe what people tell you is happening on campus right because you're not there um, and you look around in society and you're seeing all these like all these examples also of people getting canceled, people getting this and that. And it seems to make sense in the grand context of what's happening in the world and in your society. But it's important not to oversimplify these things. And that's why uh, episodes like the ones we recorded are so important, I think. Yeah. And and like, you know, and I and I should say as well that I think like on on the one hand, you have like the sort of as you as you termed it, which I think is funny and true, just like the free speech people, right? Where it's like everything is a free speech issue, even, you know, someone being kicked out of uh, a dinner party or something because, you know, they said something offensive to the host. This is somehow a free speech issue. I mean, that's like a, the wrong way of looking at what free speech actually means in principle, at least from the, the lowercase l liberal point of view. It's not meant to be something uh, to be interpreted as where as if to say you're being oppressed if someone in their house or something doesn't want you saying something, then, you know, your free speech isn't being oppressed. On the other hand, there's some people that seem to have no problem or just at least don't really focus on, you know, what large institutions in our life, like huge corporations owning multitudes of servers, for example, and controlling those servers, how that kind of affects the uh, realm of public discussion, whether or not we call that a free speech issue or a different type of censorship or whatever. Like, you know, there's different kinds of extremes. So somewhere in the middle of this sort of free speech on the one end and the other hand, people that simply don't seem to care 
about what people say you can say just because it's private property or private in setting. There's a lot of discussion in the middle there about what it means to live in civil society and what it means to have discussions and what public forums are in the like, and I mean in the soapbox sense, not like publicly funded or something like what a public forum is for discussion and where, where that sort of ends and what's appropriate and where, what it means for certain people to control certain spaces and what kind of power dynamics those raise. I have an article somewhere with Center for a Stateless Society called like um, the title something like uh, different kinds and degrees of private censorship matter, which basically gets into, you know, there is a difference between, you know, you being kicked out of your Nintendo 64 uh, retro gaming club of 20 people because you're saying things that go against that group's code or you're, you're swearing or saying racist things on the Discord server versus, you know, like uh, a bunch of people, for example. In like Silicon Valley, just decide we're gonna blacklist this person from everything, and there's like three or four, you know, people that own servers of you know search and so on and social media. Like, whether right or wrong, or however you come down this debate, these are nuanced discussions. So, all that to say, we haven't covered all the nuance on this podcast. But again, the one takeaway I hope people take from what we've done so far on free speech is this is a long format discussion. It's not something that you just you know TikTok about and say I have the right opinion on free speech. I agree. Um, well, let's move on to the next topic. It's one that's very close to my heart, very near and dear to me, and that's immigration. Um, just last week, you talked with Nathan Goodman about climate change and migration, yes. which is an interesting and important aspect of that topic. Previous to that, uh, we spoke with a very interesting Fiona Harrigan on how immigration makes us freer. And previous to that, we had the absolutely legendary prolific Chandra Pukathas on right. to talk about the downsides of immigration controls. I think that we've taken a pretty uh, interesting <laughs> um, you know, direction on, on who we're inviting on this podcast to talk about immigration. Um, as somebody who covers immigration a lot in my own writing and thinking, it makes me really proud that we have these people on and talk, talking about um, how great immigration is and, and the positive aspects of it and how to make it better and bigger. And um, I just wanted to same as before your thoughts on our guests and, and on how we've covered that topic yeah i mean like it's no secret uh obviously by the uh by the kind of people running this podcast the kind of person hosting it and the kind of uh, uh organization we belong to by being the institute for liberal studies what kind of ultimate let's call it framework uh we come to immigration on right i mean like it, that's not to say we wouldn't have an anti-immigration person on the podcast but nevertheless we explore economics politics philosophy uh, you know through a, uh, what we call a classical liberal perspective so you know all of our perspectives are ultimately that free movement of people uh whatever degree whatever shape and form that comes in it's safe to say is just as good as free movement of goods and services and so on so you know that that's my approach you know when i'm hosting different people or, or looking at this topic is regardless of course, whether it's of climate change or, you know, like we talked about Nathan or from the other kind of perspectives, we also talk to, we, I mean, I also talk to you, I think about refugees specifically early on as well. So, you know, it's no secret that the podcast itself, I think we could safely say stands for free movement of people. But again, this is a nuanced conversation. And I, and I don't mean that to say as if, you know, hey, it's nuanced on the one hand, some immigration good, some immigration bad. I certainly don't mean that personally. I'm just saying that beyond the tweets or the social media blasts people can put out about being for or against something, there's a lot, you know, 
involved here to discuss of what immigration policy means, uh, you know, w- what it truly would look like to have a world of what a lot of people are calling open borders now versus sort of like a more tailored immigration approach, right? These are all social policy and economic policy discussions in a world of states and governments and, and so on. And and that's the framework we've approached it from, I think, is always that principle. There's a lot to discuss here, whether it's just on the philosophical principle of, you know, free movement of people, uh, or it's on the what does this policy really mean kind of approach. Again, these are nuanced discussions. I think that's going to be one of the main repeats I realize on this episode. I'm just going to keep saying that the longer <laughs> format approach to this stuff works, because even if someone listens to one of our episodes and is like fiercely anti-immigration from anywhere, you know, to their country, wherever they're they're. I guess wherever they're living, right? Because we have a global audience. Um, at, at least we hope we give them something to think about. And by think about, I don't mean that in that colloquial way. Everybody says, I, I'm giving you something to think about as an I'm right. You should really go think about it. I mean, literally put the information out there so people see what kind of discussions, you know, I think of all the conversations I've had with you too, Sabine, like whether it's in private or the ones we've recorded. And I'm always amazed at, at your level of knowledge, both uh, well, I should say I'm always amazed at your passion for the subject, but you also couple that with a bunch of knowledge. Like if we're going to talk about an immigration stream in Canada or a certain type of uh, status someone has or the way the visa program works or how people bridge to, uh, you know, a permanent residency and how long that takes to actually get your citizenship and what that all looks like. This is the way countries work. These are nuanced discussions. It's not borders are important. And if, you know, I'm you know, an out and open anarchist, so you can probably imagine what my uh, position is on borders overall. But the thing is, in a world with states and where we live in, these are policy discussions that go beyond just the way we feel about a border. There's a lot of layers and governments run this stuff a certain way. Some of them do okay, quote unquote, others do terribly. You need to get in the weeds to this stuff to actually understand how the world is working before one can conclude what their stance is on any given policy, right? So again, I feel like we've given people the space and the room and the time to put forward their opinion on principle on the issue. Um, or to basically get into some policy weeds like yourself, Sabine. And I think that that's very important. So the space and the time and the place to actually talk about this stuff in a longer format, this is yet another issue where that's key. And I I really hope what we've done is give people lots to think about from different perspectives on that issue as well. Yeah, what you just said made me think about a couple of things. First of all, that it's so easy to be anti-immigration like I'm just gonna say it it's so easy to like you know pressure put your pressure points on people's emotions and say like oh you know the housing crisis those immigrants they're coming and taking all of our houses those like the jobs are immigrants are coming to take our jobs and and immigrants are doing this and that and like they're crossing through Roxham Road and like we don't know who these people are and they already had a a safe first country why wouldn't they come to Canada or something else but that like it's so easy to make those arguments and to really push people's emotions on this on patriotism and all of these these um in all of these ways and it's so easy to make money off of that right well that's a second dimension too right is this one thing politically which is a form of profiting but it's one thing politically to rile people up it's another like people should really be paying attention to all the kinds of think tanks and funding and investment just from a pure business perspective around getting people upset at this kind of stuff, just from pure profit motive perspective, even, Absolutely. That, you know, so no, you bring up a really good point there. It's so easy to make, like to get to like, to get a lot of funding for those kinds of things because it's so emotionally charged um, and it gets a lot of people listening. And I think it's like, really hard to do what we've done <laughs> which is like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna pat ourselves on the back for two seconds and I, if, 
indulge me everyone for two seconds it's really hard to do what we do which is to get people to talk about um like pro-immigration but within that world people disagree too right alex and i are very pro-immigration both of us but we disagree on some things like we have disagreements on the details of that what does it look like um and those are those arguments are just as important as arguing whether or not immigration should be a thing or like we should have less or more immigration that's a really important topic but um you know the reality of the situation is that our our economy is going to go bust very soon if we stop immigration in Canada especially so let's just like so okay let, we've established that we need immigration uh, some people might not be very happy about that but like those people are just gonna have to watch the world burn I guess if that's what they want and they implement that um if we go past that and say okay we need immigration what does it look like that is a huge argument in and of itself so having people come on and talk about first of all how it makes the world freer but then second of all how do we actually do it is super important um because we're talking about people's lives like immigration isn't just a topic it's like people who if on the refugee side people who are suffering that we're alleviating that suffering it's it's a huge responsibility that we have right um not because the some like united nations thing made us feel bad about it and we have to do it but because we're fellow human beings and we should be able to relate to one another um, and not want people to suffer. But on the other side, because we need our economy to flourish. <laughs> I don't want to be 65 with no safety net after paying into my like old age security all my life and it's all gone um, and nobody can take the job. It's just crazy. Like we, we, for my own economic benefit, I want immigrants here as well, like because I'm a good person and because I want to try to be a good person and because I want my economy to flourish. So um Talking about the nuances of that is really important. And I think we've done a really good job in doing that. Um, and having people like Chandrik Bugathas on is like a bigger deal than we give ourselves credit for. He's a pretty prolific immigration-centered uh, um, uh, thinker. And his conversation on immigration controls and how it just comes back to hurt us at the end of the day, um, not just the immigrant, but the receiving country, this is something that... I don't think anyone thinks about it or anyone talks about it. how cool is that but we have a whole episode on that i really encourage people to go listen to that episode uh because it's the way that even i was like oh yeah that's so true like i've dedicated most of my life to this and i still like find things that i never thought about before through our our, our podcast so that chandra kukathas episode like made me think about stuff very differently and i've used it in my own writing uh and my own talks on this so um, I think that's really important that we've we've chosen that road rather than the easier road of just like, you know, uh, foreigners bad. Yeah, yeah, agreed. That's really, say. Yeah, no, agreed. <laughs> and just to add, I you know don't disagree with anything you said really. So I think like you know just to add to it rather than go back on anything. But it's like another, one one thing that you did note is like this this idea that it's easy to get upset about this issue, and I do want to say that like what, that's actually a key thing to understand where other people are coming from. Like what you said there, you know, like, I mean, it, it is easy for, to get people upset about this issue. And it's also easy to get upset about this issue, depending on what your perspective is in life. One of the problems I think with the immigration debate, um, just to, you know, to give a bit of a fair shake to those who are, let's say anti-immigrant from a policy perspective, not some sort of racially charged or like fascist perspective, let's say, but like, you know, people that are just like skeptical about immigration or think that it shouldn't happen or whatever, like, People that are very pro-immigration, I find, also need to understand where these people are coming from, too. Too often in our discourse, whether it's on this topic or other topics, people lead with, I don't get how someone could, you know, insert whatever X belief or insert X belief. It's like, well, you know, that's kind of the first step. We have to be curious and we have to be understanding of, well, how could someone 
come to believe something like this or how come someone is coming from this perspective if i put myself in their shoes and had either their life experience or something happened to them or just over time they've been exposed to such media or they just think a certain way or they come from a different sort of value perspective than i do i think one of the first things to do is understand why it's easy for people to get upset about this issue and be anti-immigrant or you know maybe why they have their their point of view and again i'm simply not saying that in a way of like they're you know understand where people are coming from to understand why they're wrong. I literally mean one of the first things when it comes to human issues like this, like the the movement of people, like this is we're literally what we're talking about here at the end of the day is the free movement or restricted movement of people around the world. That's, you know, in plain English, what we're talking about, you know, you have to get to the really the meat and potatoes of why someone might be against that. And it's not just also by, by throwing mud at them and calling them names, you know, all the time. So I think that's one key thing you brought up is like, it's easy to get upset, understand why it's easy for people to be upset about this. And the second thing I think is like, you know, there's a lot of people who, um, sort of play around with let's call it like general like liberal or liberty style rhetoric about being able to do what you want and uh you know especially sometimes when it comes to economic stuff like commerce and goods like you know on on the face of it some people will just say of course they prefer you know capitalism or the market versus you know obviously some communist thing or whatever like there's a lot of people i'll just say that at a high level but when it comes to you know uh free movement of goods commerce or capital that kind of discussion isn't really applied to the free movement of people i think we really need to get down to the way people are playing this with this kind of language and really see who isn't quote-unquote lowercase l liberal on these issues not that that's necessarily a bad thing i would prefer if more people were more lowercase l liberal on these issues myself but sometimes it's also important to understand people are simply coming from a different perspective they just don't have that you're not really having that discussion anymore in a liberal arena it often is especially now today often lowercase l liberalism that needs to you know justify itself or make a good case against things that are illiberal it's important to also not have the assumption everybody's coming to the table and there's just a couple of degrees of nuance of difference between people you know some people want taxes up a percent some people want taxes down a percent someone who has a serious lowercase l liberal mentality immigration needs to understand sometimes they're talking about people that are have illiberal points of views how to deal with that is another thing to practice and understand too. You know, we're not at the end of history here in the nineties. It's not that ever, this is just tax <laughs> policy. It's not just tax policy and should 400,000 people come in or 600,000. There's sometimes it's a little bit closer in perspective people have than one would otherwise think that's important to detect that sometimes you're just having a policy disagreement with someone who's generally for immigration. Other times you are liberal versus illiberal points of view. It's, it's very important on this topic to also understand and recognize the difference between those two because people often get them confused, I find. So true. On, on your first point, I don't want to turn this into an immigration episode, but I turn everything into an immigration episode. That's okay. Thing, so too bad. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's an occupational <laughs> hazard. It's an immigration topic. Like, I can do it. Exactly. I'm amazing at that. <laughs> exactly. I'm great at parties. Um, <laughs> the, on your first topic, like, I completely agree with you, and I don't want anyone to get an impression that I, I, I don't like sympathize with with people who are, as you said, not the racist fascist ones, but like the people who are generally concerned policy wise, right? On these things, and this isn't like a right wing thing. I just want to make sure that everyone understands this is not a right wing thing no. only. Like that they're anti immigration. We're talking about like AOC, 
Bernie Sanders, uh, they're inherently anti-immigration. Um, we have in Canada, David Suzuki, Canada's full. Remember that whole rant that he went on, like, Canada's full, we're being a really big country, but, you know, it's just too many people and, like, our resources and everything like that. So this is a left-wing thing and a right-wing thing. Yeah. And I don't need to go through examples of the right-wing thing. Like, we're, we're quite familiar with them um, about how Im- immigration is bad and, like, we need to close down Roxham Road and all this stuff in Canada and especially the border, like, building a wall and all this stuff in, in the United States um so it's not just it's not like a left-wing right-wing thing it's it's just it's it's important that we hear what the arguments are for example uh right now the biggest argument against immigration that comes from the left and the right uh is housing and i, I mentioned it briefly right we may as well swag- by- segue into that topic anyway let's talk about housing yeah. and immigration what makes, it, what makes it easy is that it's so easy to blame immigration on housing and for the for a lot of the like it's true more people we bring here there's not places for them to live like what you want to, I don't want them to be living in on the streets or or get shoved into some hotel somewhere and like I want them to start their life and and you know benefit our our country which every study shows that immigration benefits Canada if not right away in, in a couple of years after they arrive depending on what kind of stream they come through but um, I want them to start doing that faster I want them to hit the ground running so I don't want them to come out and live on the street. But at the same time, it's so easy to blame it on immigration and then move on from the subject. Whereas we should be saying, okay, but doesn't it mean that like our zoning laws are are BS? That it doesn't it mean that politicians are trying to make us feel like, oh, it's immigrants' fault. We're going to put a tax on like Chinese immigration to yeah. Vancouver or, or the cap or on foreign students. On, sorry, not on immigration, but put yeah. Uh, yeah a cap on foreign students. Or he wants to put a tax on anyone from China buying a house in Vancouver, which is like a new Chinese head tax. I don't know how anybody hasn't seen it for that. What it really is. Yeah, immigration and immigrants as a scapegoat. Like, I, it, like you know, people, especially people that agree with us, are probably tired of hearing this because they're like, yeah, of course, we know it's true. But like, you know, but it, it, it's never worth you know, uh, not stating. That is to say, it can't be overstated that like, you know, the, the new people that aren't you know, quote from here coming into the country are often just used as a scapegoat for every problem, right? You know, like uh, uh, Canada, especially, but many other Western nations and countries and governments at different levels, all the way from their federal all the way down, have really, really stupid housing policies, for example. Like, it's usually either a bureaucratic mess in alphabet soup that causes things to get delayed or permits to not be passed and so on and so forth, or it's people trying to design a city like a work of art uh, from above with their drones and a bunch of people downtown and city council say, no, 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 we can't have this type of affordable housing here. It needs to be here, and the train literally needs to run at this angle. So whether, whether it's that type of mentality or just the fact there's so much bureaucratic red tape and problems with actually getting houses built... And then on top of that, getting affordable housing built, which is a whole different discussion. As oh, yeah. I'll say, I'll just say not to turn this into an Alex housing episode, so because <laughs> you said you won't turn into a Sabine immigration, immigration episode. episode yeah, an Alex episode. exactly. But but all yeah, that to say, I'm ve- run away from me. I'm a terrible host. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but like, uh, but but all that to say. Like, you know, this is this is the kind of stuff that we should be focusing on because it also affects the people in the country. Like, you know, a lot of people that are anti-immigrant or immigration skeptical often think that other folks, frankly, like even what I consider relatively mainstream in the think tank arena, like the Cato Institute or something, are going to be talking about housing and everything. No, that's a distraction. It's really this immigrant problem. Like you should not only look at how this not only look exactly not only look at how this stuff is not just about whether studying whether you know immigrants are to blame for something or not it also affects you like the person living under the thumb and the jurisdiction of this government you know the fact you know the fact that 
I, I've, I've moved out of the city, for example, in personal experience, because I thought certain costs of living were unbearable in the city, is not because someone's trying to come from a different country and make a living here. It's because the government at both the, at, at, well, at the municipal, provincial, and federal level is really screwing things up in Canada specifically, and other countries, like I said, when it comes to housing. And that's but one issue. Other people talk about welfare when it comes to immigration. Well, you know, if we had to kick out uh, a bunch of people that, and I don't agree with this, I'm just making the argument. If someone says, like, you know, a bunch of people are lazy and dependent on the government, well, if we go down the list of corporations and resident people that have been here for generations and we have to kick everyone out that's at the government trough, you might end up with maybe, like, I don't know, not anyone left if you wanted to deport everybody that's somehow dependent on the government, that kind of thing. So you focus on the state. If the state is the problem and the state is causing problems, it's not so-and-so from Italy or so-and-so from some country in Africa or whatever you want to point the finger at that's making the problem worse by coming here. It's the fact that most countries, whether it's housing, you know, uh, other kinds of affordability problems, you know, whatever, other kinds of fiscal policies that are wrecking things, these are the problems that affect not only immigrants, but the people living there. And to Sabine's point, I'm very passionate about the fact that this is both a problem on the quote-unquote right and the quote-unquote left. They will use this in different ways um, to scapegoat things. Justin Trudeau in Canada is, uh, you know, a capital P progressive type of person who's going to pad that lingo in very soft-spoken ums and ahs and not sound like a fascist. But nevertheless, the end goal is the same. They're going to blame other people for their mismanagement of things or making things worse and not letting the market do its thing in many cases. So, these are issues that affect everyone. So immigration is often tied to many issues that affect and hurt people that aren't immigrants or have been here for a while. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about people understanding that it's a very intertwined issue. But again, uh, oftentimes it's unfortunately used. These people are used as scapegoats when in reality we have to be holding governments accountable for a lot of stuff they've made worse. Okay, moving on, because we can talk about this. No, no, yeah, I know that was about to uncork another three hours on that. We will move on. <laughs> we should just do a whole episode on this, just us talking about immigration. We could. I'm someone sure someone please email us or message us if you actually like this. If you don't, we're never doing it again. Okay, moving on. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about before we go to break is school choice and education. That's yes. a big topic that we cover on the podcast. We've done a lot on this, and we've talked to a whole bunch uh, to a whole bunch of really interesting people on this topic. But I do want to point out a few specific ones. Uh, being your chat with Paige McPherson on what does school choice look like? Um, because it's so indescri- indescribable for many people. Like school choice sounds good, but it doesn't actually mean anything like solid for most people. Uh, and before that, we had the one and only James Tullion, <laughs> which was very exciting, um, talking about whether low-cost private education is even possible, because that's usually the first reaction of people is like, oh, that's just for rich people, right? Um, and that was also the topic of one of our conversations with the infamous Russ Roberts on What's Wrong with Education, an episode that we released in conjunction with a very popular podcast, Econ Talk, which I'm Great. still thrilled about. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Yeah, um, for me, and I think like all those episodes cover many different things from different angles on their own merit. So I encourage everyone to go listen to those for the content itself. Um, you know, my thoughts for today's episode, as Sabine and I here are talking, is to just actually just sort of, I guess, wrap a couple of those episodes in a bow as a category, as Sabine sort of said at the beginning of the episode. Um, and that's like, 
I think no matter what angle you're approaching this discussion of public education or education uh, in general, whether it's kind of one of the episodes we recorded where it's what could this actually look like as a system? Like if there was, you know, uh, less sort of, let's say, government running of schools, for example, or, you know, we talked about, uh, we talked with some other folks about, you know, what education generally looks like and that kind of thing. But like, I think when you zoom out, there's really two key questions, regardless if you get into the policy weeds or stay at the philosophical level on principle, which is what do we mean by education? And then what do we mean by public education, right? In my view, a lot of what people mean by education today is really just schooling, which is getting a certain amount of hours under a child's belt or even in post-secondary under your belt to get a stamp that essentially says you've done that, those, that hour investment, right? And you've been graded on it as such. But without getting too far into it, I'll say I think socially, culturally, especially in the West, we need to think a little more broadly about what we mean an educated person to be and what a worldly person is and how, if anything, whether it's through a school system or if you're just raising a child, what it means to be an educated person. That's one sort of philosophical point that's underneath all these discussions, whether you're at the policy weeds or you're at the high level, what do we actually mean by being an educated person? Um, There's a lot been written about this today and in the past, but I will say that a lot of whatever the school systems are doing in many countries today are barely addressing that question or at least living up to their supposed name of quote-unquote education in my value judgment. There's a lot of schooling happening, not in many cases a lot of education. The second thing, again, whether you're at the policy level in the weeds at a certain province or state jurisdiction or you're at the high principal level, what do we mean by public education? Unfortunately, a lot of government propaganda and frankly, teacher union propaganda has got us into thinking that um, public education, that is to say the principal that people around the corner from you that aren't your family care about your child's education and the application of the idea that education can be funded by not just the people involved, but, you know, maybe by quote unquote, the society. We'll leave that for a second. But just this idea of public education has to be the government funneling funding somewhere to funnel it to bureaucrats, to run a school board, to do this, to do that. And that eventually funnels down to publicly, uh, essentially employed teachers, principals, built schools and so on. If one thing is taken away from our discussions on public education in this podcast, whether it was just a mention in an episode with some of the guests or we focused on it, is that even if you are for the idea that the public, pause, has a stake in education, hence public education, there is a whole arena in there to talk about, you know, what that means. That doesn't involve tons of teachers being employed by the public purse and tons of bureaucrats and tons of schools being built following state driven curriculums you know one sort of at least in my what, what is in my value judgment honestly like milk toast sort of discussion that just as an example is the voucher system right the idea that and some people have even brought us to the point to give the state the cookie and say yes you can be involved where the state can certify or license certain schools but you open up a relatively relatively free market on schools and parents get a coupon that they can you know just to simplify it down for this discussion essentially apply tuition at whatever school they want that's one sort of you know, uh, again, in my value judgment, very like milk toast, very light way of looking at how we don't have to have what we have now. And there's also all the way down to if different communities and different, and by communities, I mean, it's in a very small sense, not like urban centers of 3 million people. I'm talking about like, you know, like communities, streets, networks of homeschoolers, or, you know, back to the old schoolhouse in a field mentality where, you know, you get pockets of people and 30 students at a time learning something by who the neighborhood chooses to employ. Could that be publicly funded? Yes, in principle. 
I'm certainly not saying as I go through this long-winded answer that I agree with everything I just said, but the idea of what public education means and how the public can have a stake in whether or not the child down the street receives either the three R's or beyond that, it doesn't need to just be within the narrow range of the idea of we need to have the government spend money on this bureaucracy, this board, this curriculum, these teachers, et cetera, and run this whole operation. So that, whether it's widening the view on what education means or widening the view on what public education means, that's really the key. I think a lot of people should widen their view on what all these things mean. And for those listening that agree with what I'm saying, I would just encourage you all, and certainly I'm not perfect at this, I have to encourage myself to do it too, that when someone brings up a counter opinion to all these kinds of stuff for these policies and discussion, before we jump into all the other stuff, literally stop and, and see if they're even operating with the same idea of what public education education means. Because I find like a lot of fruit and good conversation, even with those who don't necessarily agree with one who might be a lowercase l radical liberal on this topic outright, there's a lot of good discussion that could be happening what we mean by education, public education, before you get to the other stuff and start arguing about private schools. Mm-hmm. Sure, and I think that we've done a pretty good job making a lot of those arguments through our guests. Um, we've really broadened our, uh, I mean, I'll be, I'll be frank. Personally, I've broadened my own <laughs> thoughts on school choice based on our guests that we've had on the podcast. Uh, it's not something I, I don't have kids. Um, and I like, you know, I, I see my friends have kids and I see what they're going through. And I, I went through the public school system, um, when I was a kid. So that was, that's as much experience as I have with it. So I don't really think it was that big of a deal when I first started talking about it with you all and hearing from people like James Tooley and things like that have completely changed my vision because I was one of those people who was like this, that's just for rich people right like my parents could never afford a private school, school right yeah yeah like school choices for rich people they they are allowed to have choices and the rest of us aren't <laughs> uh, uh, growing up in a family that was not rich that was that was completely out of reach for my family uh, but then listening to somebody like James Tooley I'm like oh we're just doing it wrong <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's why yeah. it seems that way <laughs> so uh things like that make me question everything i used to think about school choice and um i, I don't know i think it's really really important so anyway we i think we've done we've done well on that too yeah and i'll just if, one, one last comment there i'll just say that before we lose the thought i just want to say that often what's presented as either the civil society or quote-unquote free market or free associative solution in action that's not working is anything but a lot of people will say, Oh, you know, either whether they point to the historical record or often as a favorite in the United States point at a certain jurisdiction in a certain state that quote unquote tried the, you know, the free market approach or the more private approach to public education. When you dig a little deeper, often you find heavy government restriction that is essentially just either granting favors directly or indirectly by effect to special interests or whatever else, creating some sort of locked into tier system where, you know, like you said, Sabine, if someone's rich, sure, they can go pay to get better. But if not, you're stuck in a public school kind of thing. And yeah. it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it can never be overstated that people that are seriously for uh, more wide ranging solutions to education for young people and so on and so forth. Um, when you really get into the weeds with these folks, like, you know, and I include myself in this category, we're not for that kind of stuff. So anyone who's a little bit free education, uh, skeptic, uh, it's, I think it's important to state that, that, you know, the, the examples that many people point to in certain jurisdictions where you end up with public schools or private schools for the rich, people that are more for free education, less government involvement in this stuff also hate that outcome. And it's usually caused by a lot of 
terrible things and missteps along the way as well from a policy design perspective. So just thought to get yeah. that footnote out there because I think it's very important. Well, I was that person. I'm not a perfect liberal, but I'm always learning. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's always learning everything. So that... And that's the point of the podcast. We're always learning. Like, we, we don't know everything. We so, stay curious. Uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, that's the curious task. We're trying to figure things out, trying to get new perspectives. And with that, we'll go to break. Uh, you've been listening to The Curious Task. We'll be back talking about weird and wonderful episodes that maybe you never would have thought we'd have. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Janet Bufton, and Yakov Mikhailovich. Remember to link us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Alex Aragona, your regular host today, looking back at 200 episodes of this wonderful, crazy amazing podcast that we've been putting together for the past few years um we spent a lot of time talking about some serious uh discussions in the, in the last uh, half hour or so um next i'd really like to talk about episodes that don't really fit anywhere neatly uh we've had a bunch of those too but i think we're pretty awesome for example uh james harrigan on what's wrong with utopias a topic i think is super important um because utopias just sound so nice don't they <laughs> uh can ai be ethical with Rachel Lamasky, like what's up with that? Um, possibly the best named guest in terms of what they're talking about. Thomas Bunting, what can baseball teach us about politics? LOL. Uh, Janet Bufton and Sarah Squire, why tweet the wealth of nations? And finally, Namish Adia on did Bollywood liberalize India? So I think that we're really putting an emphasis that like learning and talking about liberalism doesn't have to be run-of-the-mill it isn't like uh you know uh it's not every episode is about the central bank <laughs> yeah <laughs> which are episodes very important episodes but sometimes you want to talk about you know what baseball and what it teaches us about politics so you want to talk about why two amazing women would tweet the entirety of the wealth of nations on formerly twitter now x um and things like that so what are your thoughts on those episodes that don't really fit anywhere yeah, and, right, it, and I think with a catalog of, well, this, what we're recording right now is the 200th episode, but I think with a catalog of essentially almost 200 episodes, um, you know, I think there's a lot people could look at on the list that they would argue and say, well, that doesn't really fit into neatly to a different category and or of this or that. So I think like the ones you mentioned, plus the others that someone might say don't fit into a, a specific category. I mean, I, I think, yeah, my high level takeaway on that is, is exactly what you just said, is that you know, when we open, I mean, we're already being broad enough by saying, you know, politics, philosophy, and economics from, uh, so that lowercase l liberal perspective. Um, but, you know, it, although that already sounds kind of broad, because there's a lot to dig into there, one can even see how, the, how this kind of stuff can go broader. I mean, like, it's, it's, you know, pushing the case a little bit to say you can take a lowercase l liberal point of view on, on everything. But you can at least come from the, you know, the lens of it at times, you know, the basic lens of like, you know, for example, I'll just take one, you know, that, uh, you know, um, that there's knowledge and wisdom in crowds and human beings free associating and exchanging ideas and whether or goods or services or whatever voluntarily while respecting each other with certain sets of rules. 
what those rules look like is not necessarily need to be enforced by a modern state, for example, or the way we think of that now. Like, you can really broaden the lens of what quote-unquote liberalism, you know, for instance, the kind of liberalism that was spinning around in Adam Smith's head and spinning around in the wealth of nations more specifically and also and also the theory of moral sentiments to a large degree. Um, you can really sort of take that sort of approach and lens of the world and in the broadest sense, the lens of what it means to be human and what it means and how we interact with each other, what benefits and costs there are, the dynamics we should watch out for, the dynamics that are positive, things we should be wary of, things that we should look forward to. These things can be applied to many things. Uh, and also other, and in reverse, there are other things out there that can teach us about politics and philosophy and economics. It's not always that, you know, politics, philosophy, economics, and related topics are gateways into understanding other things. Sometimes other things are gateways into understanding, um, politics, philosophy, and economics. Anthropology, for example, um, you know, could be an interesting thing that adds to your knowledge about the way you think about economics or yeah, maybe we could look at baseball itself first, like in one of our episodes, and then think True. about politics, right? It isn't all about like regression analysis. That's not how you really truly understand uh, the world we live in. And um, it's a really important way to understand the data uh, and really understand theories. But as soon as you have to look at the things that are around you that you take for granted in your life, yeah, to see liberalism within or uh, the potentiality. Is that a word? Potential for liberalism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and like in everything and everyday things. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and not only that, I mean, like, I think it's, it's like sort of a, um, cliche to basically tell people, you know, if you want to, if you want to have a wide range of ideas on things, you have to read wide. Um, but like, you know, like uh, applying that, whether it's listening to podcast episodes and, and, and choosing who we have on the, the curious task, or it's like quite literally your own reading list. I mean, what some episodes and topics uh, that don't neatly fit into certain categories really remind me of is that exactly as you said, Sabine, it's like sort of like, um, you know, I know like you said it, it's totally true that not everything's a regression analysis. That's both like just half completely true, but also half sort of a flippant way of saying something else that's true, which is you can't always view uh, the world through the exact same lens or the exact same discipline that you're most comfortable with. There are other people out there with not only different ideas, but also different approaches and different angles and different ways of thinking um, about certain things, whether it be the way humans exchange at the micro level or even war and international relations at the macro level. Unfortunately, if you have to get into a good old chat about wars and international relations, it's not just either in the same intellectual camp or within the same disciplines or certain universities and certain departments that have all the answers. Same thing with think tanks and, you know, um, you know, and, and uh, education institutions and so on. It's very important to get out of your category sometimes and not just yeah. say, oh, gee whiz, you know, this is my 42nd lecture on why the central bank is bad this week. That's so great. Don't get me wrong. I love the 42nd lecture on why the central bank is bad. I, I will always be there sitting if you invite me over to your house and, you know, have some beers ready or whatever, I'll, I'll sit on the couch with you and watch that lecture that you're so excited about that only has 500 views on YouTube. I like that stuff too. But <laughs> it's important to also broaden and say, you know, how else can we be curious about either this topic or just other topics? And, and one thing that's been the most intellectually satisfying to me, and I've gotten this through the podcast as well, studying the books or the essays and papers that, you know, prepare me to ask people questions is that sometimes just diving into something that you actually have already sort of prejudged, unfortunately, to our own demise as not necessarily being relevant to your interest, or your idea over here, 
one, one of the most one of the yeah one of the most pleasurable experiences i had on the curious task is like having a dot sort of like instantaneously connect in my head when i'm like you know six pages through it to someone else's paper like oh you know what that connects to something else i'm really interested in reading over here and i didn't even think um that connection could exist of course you know a lot of us do that not because we're ignorant or because we don't know how to judge things because a lot of things on the face of it you won't actually know how to connect to or connect with until you mix a bit of mental labor and get those juices sort of flowing and then you make your own connections so this whole idea of getting out of the category although it's not as if like you know the majority of our catalog is not in the politics philosophy economics category whatever i sort of like the idea of the non-categorizable episodes sort of being a little owed to our own mentality around sometimes getting off the basic 101 of certain things or off the tried and true disciplines or the tried and true uh, way of thinking about things and just coming at it from a different angle. Sometimes it's just fun to do so. Uh, other times it's just very important for your own thinking. So yeah, staying curious yeah, outside right. of the sandbox you're comfortable with is is so important. Yeah, like Nimisha talking about Bollywood liberalizing India. That's not something that would obviously come to you, but after you hear what you're talking about, it's like, oh, how could I never have thought of that before? Media has a huge impact on the way that people see their society. Um, and it's not just an Indian thing. It's a Canadian thing. It's an American thing. It's a, It happens a lot, actually, There's where people are like sort of, um, you know, homophobic. And then they watch like two seasons of Modern Family. Yeah. And they're like, oh, the gay people aren't scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just like me. Exactly. And, and that <laughs> and one. That's like another liberalization of someone's thinking. And like, woo for that. Yeah. And, and that one actually like, you know, just a bit of, to go on a bit of a tangent about that. And like, because I'm glad you sort of pushed further into that one is like, and I'm going to come at it from a backwards angle, but I hope people listening understand where I'm connecting the dot here on this one is that that type of topic, how did Bollywood liberalize India in and of itself, you can sort of understand and you can listen to the arguments made and maybe even check out some of the movies that are pointed to that, you know, track sort of how people's social views change. But you probably won't get like a full, 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 full understanding down to your soul and fingertips unless you take some interest in your head, even if it's just, you know, every now and then. Uh, if you know of film and film criticism, for example, even if you don't want to make it your whole life, even if you don't really care about it that much, because I talk to a lot of people, for example, and you know, not to turn this into a film podcast to steal a line from Sabine, but that's just something outside of the podcast and the ILS that I'm very passionate about film, film criticism, that kind of thing. Um, and like, you know, I talk to a lot of people that is like, they're like, yeah, like, you know, I'm not a big movie person or whatever, for example, right? And that's okay. You don't have to be, but. Even I find shutting your brain down or just not caring as much about that area of art, for example. Well, when you're going to connect the dot and do film criticism or cultural criticism, because a lot of identity politics is about cultural criticism now, I have to say whether it's left, right, libertarian, non-libertarian, liberal, progressive, whatever you want to say, one thing that makes me cringe really hard as somebody that really enjoys film is how everyone seems to be pretty damn terrible sometimes in political circles, in the PPE circles, at film criticism, to the point of saying, this film represents this, and it's just like, I'm not even sure if these people have watched the film, you know? It's like people that watch <laughs> Full Metal Jacket and think it's a pro-military movie. So all that to say, film criticism is but one area that whether you don't consider yourself an artsy-fartsy you know, film festival person and you're more steeped in PPE and you're and you're listening and you're getting that master's degree or PhD or whatever, even something like film criticism and just being genuinely curious about it can really actually add and, you know, connect some dots in your head, I find, at least that's been my experience with both current events, current cultural, but perhaps even your own field. And I think that one episode is a really good example of that. Because, you know, I, I, I certainly... Um, 
I felt that sort of merging of passions in my own brain when I was reading his work on that, when I, we're talking about film and liberal social attitudes. I, that was very exciting. So our final category, as uh, some episodes, I think may, maybe made people kind of stop in their tracks and go, what? <laughs> <laughs> so those kinds of episodes are Chris Fryman episode on whether it's okay to ignore politics. That's a pretty shocking uh, topic for most people, I'd say. Jessica Flanagan, should we legalize all drugs? Like, what? Uh, Mike Munger actually asking the question of whether price gouging is wrong. Like, obviously, the first reaction most people have is like, it's obviously wrong. <laughs> like, these are the kinds of episodes that I love the most, probably. <laughs> because those are the ones that I send to my friends who don't know anything about liberalism. And I'm like, listen to this price gouging episode. They're like, what the heck is going on? Um, so it's a good way to troll your friends. Um, and it's also a really great way to learn um, really alternative thinking that you're not going to come across anywhere else. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like for me, like one thing that I like about that kind of category, which is not really a category, it's just sort of a theme that runs through some of these titles or, or the way we've discussed it is that like one thing that those episodes have taught me preparing for them are also like and even listening to back to the, some of the episodes sometimes, too, is again, number one, something I've repeated multiple times in this episode, which I'm obviously very passionate about is that the longer format chat on these types of discussions is very important. This isn't kind of stuff that you get in a two-minute mainstream uh, TV media uh, report, which usually gets everything wrong to begin with on, number one, what's happening, and number two, what we mean by price, price gouging, for example. Or, or or on the other hand, even like the, the, the frankly, I'll say it in my value, value judgment, like pseudo-smart sort of really meant for views, but quick hit intellectual stuff where you're getting like this five to you know minute bursts of people sort of, uh, frankly, just talking about how dumb other people are that don't understand something. You need the longer <laughs> format discussion to really get into some of these kinds of stuff. And the first thing, if you go in with an open mind, whether it's why it's okay to ignore politics, uh, what we mean you know, by price gouging, whether it's wrong or not, is that the conclusion isn't as important to jump into when you're discussing this stuff as understanding what it is you're talking about up front. And about I won't. The journey. Hmm? <laughs> it's about the journey. Ex- yeah, it's about the journey, exactly. <laughs> but it's also like, you know, so for instance, and these are just some examples of topics like this, right? Where whether you listen to Chris Fryman or you listen to Mike Munger on price gouging too, it's important to first discuss what we mean by price gouging and what are the kinds of things behind that, for example, to continue with the price gouging discussion. Because oftentimes what these types of titles and these types of topics themselves do is that and maybe this is just the way a lot of media and a lot of discussion around the stuff works today is you're expecting to jump into an immediate fight of, of some sort of undying principle between two camps, whether it's the, for example, to be funny, the rabid capitalists on the one side that think any kind of, you know, price mechanism is justifiable because of some sort of weird, you know, sophistry or whatever, or you think it's going to be on the one hand, like, you know, that communist guy, the state communist guy, that's going to say, Hey, you know what? Like we don't need markets at all or something like, you know, people that, come to these topics sometimes are really like interested in jumping into the conclusion but i think what's really interesting on that journey to use a word you just used to is that let's actually talk about what we mean first by price gouging if we see something we think about as price gouging just to use that example what are the kind of mechanisms and things that led to such a price is it you know just the market correcting for something and actually helping us ration products and services for example during a national disaster because the price is moving freely so someone who's going to buy a bottle of water is actually in desperate need of it versus someone, for example, who uh, just wants to pour it over their hands because their child got their hands a little sticky at the beach. Like, you know, because that's the difference between a dollar bottle of water and a $10 bottle of water, for example. Uh, or, or is it 
that, you know, the state got involved and created some sort of structure in the economy where, yeah, corporations are effectively price gouging. They've been giving some sort of monopolistic or ish position in the economy where they can do that kind of stuff. What What's really happening is very key on these on these issues. Same thing with like Chris Fryman's, you know, ignoring politics, right? You know, that series of books, uh, I think it's like why it's okay, if I remember that correctly, why it's okay to eat meat or why it's yeah. okay to ignore politics from an editor's perspective. And we even had... Oh, I apologize. Sabine will correct me. We had um, the gentleman on that with the why it's okay to eat meat, and I forget his name, and I apologize yeah. if you're listening. John Shahar. Yes. Um, you know, he even sort of said, like, as, as he sort of, I think he even said it on the air, like, as sort of like an editor's choice, of course, they want to create this nice series with the catchy title and so on and so forth. But it's rarely what you expect the argument to be inside these books. It's not just about flippantly saying yes or no to something. There's actually a lot going on, a lot of meat to chew on. Pardon, pardon the pun. But, um, but you know, like there's often a lot going on in these arguments to actually look into that go beyond just jumping to a conclusion. And oftentimes there's a lot more going on than sometimes these, these fun sort of titles uh, suggest. A lot of people do like moral tests, right? They like to sort of answer and signal where they fall on an issue just by being like, you know, why it's okay to do X. No, it's not. Or yes, it is. But even that, although it makes some of us feel good sometimes to signal exactly what we believe in, isn't as telling as actually getting into really what's going on there. So yeah, one one thing that I've found really interesting about sort of these, huh, what type of, you know, category of episodes is like, you can do an hour on this kind of stuff. It's not just a bunch of, uh, you know, sil- silly people talking about their opinion and, and talking about how other people are dumb for not believing or not believing some certain seemingly easy proposition at the front there's a lot more to understand on a lot of these topics than meets the eye so um we're entering our final uh portion of the episode today sadly because i'm having so much fun talking to you but i do have a few like sort of quick fire questions but you can take as long as you want to answer them i'm not going to force you to do <laughs> sure <laughs> there are four questions that i want to ask you um first is favorite episode can you think of one or is it just too hard i can't i'll have to skip on that i i think you know I, i'm one of those people that i have to actually look at the spreadsheet and the list again to start saying this one this one this one this one this one i think i like for different reasons and it, it gets too complicated so i'm not going to i'm not going to get get into get into that but i will say that i think the last um you know i think all the whole catalog is good uh, one fun thing I'll leave listeners with if they want to go do it is to really listen how uh, things have changed since like episode one, two, three, four, five to 10 in the last 25, for example. I think um, our style and our production might have upgraded as we've all gotten a little better at what we're doing. But I hope, and of course, feedback always welcome. You can email us that really the essence of what we're doing has remained the same. So that's one of my favorite things about all the episodes, which makes them all my favorite episode in a way. So favorite thing that happened while recording an episode. I have an answer for this. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I can't, I can't say favorite thing. I think of some funny things. Unfortunately, since my humor is very curvy or enthusiasm oriented, I think of like, it's not my favorite thing, but there's cringe things. There's losing connections, uh, you know, uh, uh, internet connections five minutes as, into one of the best answers I've ever heard in my life from a guest. And Sabine yeah. having to sit there and say, oh, I'm sure Alex's internet will reset and be back in a sec. So that's always nice and cringe and awkward. That's a favorite kind of moment. Uh, other times we have had, we've had dogs interject. We've had kids interject. Uh, I've seen, you know, chaos ensuing behind people's webcams. So just the overall, um, I guess, little tidbit of real life happening around what sometimes is a very zoned in conversation. That's my favorite category of things to happen while recording. My favorite is definitely meeting everyone's pets, especially during COVID because everybody was home. Yeah. So you'd meet dogs and cats and they're so cute. Yeah. And they'd be like, sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm like, 
do not move that cat. Do not yeah. move that cat. It's so cool. watch it while you guys are talking. Please do not move the cat. And the cat just stares at me in yeah. the video. Like, what's going on? Why is this like lady's giant head here? Like, I just I love those pets. So like, please bring your pets on as a guest. Don't feel ashamed. Bring them all. I want all the doggies. I want all the kitties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh biggest shift since covid in the podcast that you think we've had you mean, you mean um since covid sort of dwindled dwindled down or do you mean like since covid hit kind of thing or both pre and, po- and post covid in our podcast pre and post i think yeah like i mean let's just talk about pre during and post i think pre i think we had this idea in our head and I still agree to this to some degree. And I've said this before that like, you know, the richest sort of episodes are going to be recorded in person. And I think that there's, you know, on the one hand, our pre COVID mentality, there's a lot to be said for that mentality. I think, you know, since COVID, we've actually still have recorded a handful of in-person episodes. And I think there still is a richness of interaction and conversation, whatever's in the air. I don't know why and why this happens that can't be replicated unless you're in person. So I think that's one big sort of uh difference is that when we went mostly to zoom because of the pandemic and and did all that kind of stuff um that's the biggest difference but on the flip side i think we've also learned that a lot of episodes can just can shake out to be just as much quality even if a little different um than the feeling that you have recording in person um you can get like a lot of high quality stuff out of um out of what we're doing here even whether it's on zoom or in person so i would say the biggest shift to me is like our discovery of the different ways to go about putting together an episode right i mean we've done everything from everyone cushily sitting in their house on zoom and you know um not having to leave their own premises through to literally driving to a city or flying sometimes in your case i mean to to uh you know go meet people and set up uh you know our recording stuff in their hotel room or wherever they're staying their airbnb so I think just however we get the story, if you will, however we get this stuff on record, that's been the biggest shift to me is I think we've broadened our perspective on where you get the best stuff, although although it's different. That's been an interesting adventure. My, one of my favorite things uh, post-COVID was when Matt, you, Matt, and I met up at the office to record an episode, and we had like one table, like one very, very long table between each of us so that we wouldn't be anywhere close to each other. And I had my Lysol wipes, and I had my gloves and my mask on. Yeah. I have a picture. I have a picture of it on my phone. Yeah, no, this was this was like right at the be I think this was so far away from each other. Yeah, this was like right at the beginning of the whole thing. And like it this was like I if I remember correctly, this was before like any vaccine was made available and, and before they discovered more things about COVID itself. So this was when they, they sort of went into full safety mode, right? Wipe everything, do this, do that, whether that's helping or not. So I, I we sort of took the opportunity to be like, all right, well, we're leaving our houses. But we're still going to play it safe. So that was that was fun. <laughs> I have to post that picture somewhere. Maybe for our patrons on Patreon, I'll post it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was us in the building downtown recording. And then if you looked outside in the street, barely anyone there. So we got out of our house, though. We, we did it. Uh, where do you hope to see the podcast go in the future? That's our final question for you. Um, I certainly, you know, don't want to... Uh, um, be getting ahead of any either official announcements or official goings ons of our podcast. But I think you and I, I think it's safe to allude to, to people listening, Sabine, that, you know, we've been at the ILS tossing around, um, you know, different ideas about, you know, we've hit episode 200. Where do we go from here? Some of the ideas 
are in the range of covering different kinds of topics we haven't covered before, maybe broadening even more about, you know, of course we say politics, philosophy, economics, but what that sort of means and how we go about it, we've been talking a lot about. So that might not necessarily change, but see more variety come up and, and our idea of that broaden. We've also gamed with the idea of having different people host different episodes. We've tried that and prototyped it in the past. I think I took a break at one point, Sabine, and you recorded some, for example. I think we might be going further into that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of stuff that could happen. What I want is sort of the to go from here. I hope that this format and this podcast continues. You know, whether I'm hosting literally every episode or not is a different discussion. But I think what we've created, I hope, continues on for because I think it is contributing um, important hours and, quote, digital tape, unquote, as an expression to the archives of, of these subjects. Um, so I hope we can continue getting stuff in this format from the ILS on these topics with these types of guests and these styles of discussion out there. That's, that's what I hope is that it continues, you know, the future is long, so I can't say continues forever, but you know, certainly not closing down anytime soon. So however the pod, however the podcast evolves, uh, I want to continue staying true to its mission and I want to continue basically producing great content. That's the two things that I hope continue to happen. Yeah. And something that we do want to share with uh, our listeners is that, after this episode, we're taking a bit of a break for a month, four weeks of reruns, where we're going to be discussing a little bit about why we found these episodes really important to us personally. So either myself or Matt or you will will start the episode off with a little bit of a, a quick conversation on why we picked this particular episode uh, and why we chose to rerun it. We're taking a little bit of a break, but we'll be back full steam ahead in October, uh, mid-October. So excited for that. Um, and so excited to have spoken with you today. Alex, and we've talked about a lot, so let's bring it full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Not really a question today, it was a 200 episode extravaganza. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone who has been listening to the podcast from day one to someone who just recently started listening that they can get out of the podcast as a whole? I think that's the way that I wanted to do the episode today. I mean, I'll answer that in sort of two sections, a, a specific message for both those kinds of potential listeners and also then just a roundup. So for someone who's been listening to the podcast uh, from day one, you know, whether, you know, missing a few episodes here and there, we'll give you a pass. But but the point is, if you've kind of seen it since its baby days till now, uh, I can only say I really hope that uh, that you do enjoy what you're listening to and that these do provide value and encourage you to email us too, because we really want to hear your feedback. Uh, any, anytime we receive that kind of feedback, thoughts, uh, beliefs, opinions, or even if you want to talk to me and get mad at me about something or just have a conversation with me, honestly, like this is what it's all about. Getting these ideas out there. Um, when you're listening to something, you're listening to a conversation, uh, you know, with me and someone else or me and two people or whatever the case may be, but hopefully it's starting a conversation in your brain. And anytime if you want to continue that, we encourage you to keep doing your own research and also reach out to us if you have feedback or anything like that. So thank you for sticking with us if you're one of those kind of listeners. If you're just joining us um, and you don't know, and, and that's okay, uh, but I will sort of uh, say it directly, this is not a kind of standard sort of structure sort of podcast in the sense of we do run each guest a similar way but you know you shouldn't think for example if you've listened to the last 10 episodes and say i'm going to continue on with these guys i really like this that there's no reason to go back to season one if you will <laughs> or, or no reason to go back like it, obviously it's it's self-promoting and it's it, you know and it's it sounds sort of cheap to say but it really is true if you've just caught a handful of our episodes even if there's some titles you see that you yeah you feel like ah, i can skip that or you just don't want to go back to the backlog i really encourage you folks to do that that's what i want you to take away if you're if you just sort of started tuning in there's a lot in the backlog that's interesting 
even if the title doesn't seem immediately interesting to you, there's always an hour or so uh, of, of stuff in there that often off digresses into other topics too. So sometimes there's a lot of gems in certain episodes that even if you're not interested in that topic, you might be missing something that's very relevant to you or, or at least makes you laugh. Um, so that's kind of like those two types of listeners we might have. But but in general, I mean, I hope what people take away, and I've said this before in sort of our chat episodes like the Sabine, is really that all of these things to the same or similar degree are very important topics, right? Whether it's something that you, and everybody should be curious about their own uh, take on these topics and their own position and skeptical even about their own opinions and what they know. Even if you completely agree with something we've said on the podcast, I really hope we've either been able to give you more information about why you agree with something, or maybe you thought you've agreed with something and then you listen to us and you say, you know what? I actually don't fully like what these guys are saying. Uh, do I actually agree with this? Like, that's why the long format exists. We really want to put conversations, people's thoughts, people's beliefs, and just the dynamic of the back and forth and the long format out there for people to really think about and either learn about stuff or question their own beliefs. So if anything, the whole backlog is great if it's convinced you of something or unconvinced you of something, but it'd be failing in its mission if it didn't at least make you more curious about something. I can only hope that people as a takeaway are not thinking that the hour the curious task has done on something is doing a topic full justice because it's not. And I will say other podcasts and other sources of information, they make a point sometimes even in their marketing of saying the only source you need for X, Y, and Z Frankly speaking, be careful of that bullshit and don't listen to it. I'll be the first to tell you that the hour we do on some of these topics is not the definitive hour on it. It's supposed to make you more curious, make you read more, make you think more, and get the conversation going in your own head. That's what I hope you take away from the episodes. And if it's done that to some degree, mission accomplished. If not, we have to change something. Write us an email. But in all, ser- in all seriousness, that's what I really sincerely hope everyone takes away from this. Stay curious. You know, there's an expression, stay hungry, stay foolish. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Keep thinking wide, keep reading wide. Take our episodes as a starting point into a broader level of thinking about certain things. And if it's enforcing something you agree with, challenge yourself even further if you truly agree with it and what else you can do to learn about it. That's what I hope the episodes do individually and as a catalog. Love that. Amazing. So we'll leave it off there. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. It was so much fun talking to you about this. And uh, we'll see you all back with some fresh, beautiful episodes in October. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.